Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Geek Warning from the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang, and on today's show with me is tech editor Dave Rome in Sydney, Australia. Hello, Dave. Hello. We also have our other tech editor, Ronan McLaughlin. Hi, Ronan. Hey. Uh, Zach is sitting this one out again, but I promise we'll have him back on very shortly. Uh, Kaylee is actually already in Europe getting ready for the tour, which starts this coming weekend, believe it or not. Uh, Dave, standard question, latest tool purchase. Mm, uh, no, I've been a, a very good boy. I, I haven't, uh, I haven't purchased anything. Or have I? No, that's a lie. I uh, see. This is this is how bad my problem is. I actually don't even know what I purchased last night. I uh, I bought a, a torque wrench off Amazon because Amazon Basics now have a torque wrench. Uh, and someone sent me a link saying, "What do you think about this?" And I said, "You know, I don't know." So then I bought one. <laughs> oh man. Uh, okay. This is the things that Escape Collective you, benefit from. Is it wrong to assume that you've? Is it wrong to assume you forgot about that tool purchase because you? I'm don't ashamed by it. it. No, you don't envisage it being up to up to sta- standard. Yeah, I mean it's it's arguably more a work a self funded work purchase than a a tool that I actually need or want. I'm just curious because uh, it's very well priced. It wasn't a lot of money. Um, yeah, so Dave, let me ask you this. Mm. So, uh, I think anyone who is a regular listener of geek warning can, uh, will, will know that, uh, you buy yourself a lot of tools. Mm. Um, do you ever get rid of any of them? I used to, I used to move on the, uh, the ones that were no longer worthy of daily use. Um, I used to move them on and find new homes for them. And then. And then at some point the the hoarding kicked in, and I realized that how can I compare the new tools to the old tools if I don't have the old tools? Uh, so yeah, uh, in the last few years, I've I've tried to hold on to them where I can, um, which is sometimes more practical than uh, than other times. So maybe yeah. maybe a maybe a better line there, Dave, might be if you like if if you're that considerate that you're not passing these tools on to other mm-hmm. users if they if they if they're past their 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 best. Maybe that's why you're not rather than rather than hoarding. I, I'm just giving you a way out here. No, I think it's hoarding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, we will continue to work on this problem, quote unquote problem, so to speak, moving forward. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Ronan, I, Ronan. I'm curious. Um, have you left a review for our wonderful hotel that we stayed in in Frankfurt yet? I have not. Uh, it's still it's still racking my brain where I stayed in a, a Leonardo hotel previously. I'm pretty sure it might have been Bruges or something like that, but I haven't gone back and reviewed the, the Frankfurt Leonardo hotel. I, I guess in fairness, I think you and I can both agree that the hotel itself was actually just fine. I, I mean, yeah, it, they they were definitely... Um, doing better than I expected, as you as you sort of showed me showed me <laughs> right, the, right. showed me the way, and we got to the street where the hotel was located. I wasn't expecting um, as 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 good a hotel as we. I mean, the rooms were clean and the breakfast was great. What more can you ask? For? Right, right. But this this the setting, however, mm, yeah, outside of the doors, it for, sounds like you might have been clutching onto your camera bags tighter than uh, you normally would. <laughs> yeah. So just for. Just for, for anyone listening who might be considering a visit and stay in the Frankfurt, Germany area, uh, if you come across a deal for lodging that's very close to the main train station, do not take it. There is a reason why it is so inexpensive. 
And uh, yeah, Wade, Kaylee, uh, I'm sorry, but next year for, for next year's Eurobike show, uh, expect the lodging for uh, for Ronan and I and Dave and whoever is going to attend to be significantly more expensive next year because otherwise I would say covering our hospital bills or whatever from after we get mugged in Frankfurt outside the train station is going to be significantly more expensive. So consider it an investment. <laughs> anyway. Um, James, before we move on, I, I have a number for you. Oh. 47,500. Is that how many steps you took during the, the whole tra- <laughs> No <Yes>. way, really? <laughs> I, and I, what, did I even have two days at the show? I was late, 48 hours late getting there. And I, yeah, I had about a day and a half on the f- on the on the floors, so forty seven and a half thousand. Is that in, God. in two days? In two days, effectively. Is that uh, like just the two days, not including transit to? So to the show? that's that's from nine a.m. on the or well from midnight on Wednesday morning until midnight Wednesday night, and the same for Thursday. It's quite um, a lot of steps. Mm, Tuesday was pretty low because I spent most of the day stuck in an airport that I had never planned to get to mm. uh, and Friday was pretty low because I spent most of the day on an, either an airplane or a bus getting home mm, okay I guess we'll, mm. we'll explain why there's so many steps shortly uh, we'll, we'll get to that hmm <laughs> yeah yeah well anyway so as usual we have a wonderful show in store for you uh, so Runner and I definitely have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about after last week's Eurobike show um Shimano apparently has a new 12-speed mechanical 105 group set on the way, and Dave and I have some thoughts on e-bikes. Um, but before we get into all that, a uh, quick word from this week's sponsor, and that would be all of our Escape Collective members. So we don't run any ads on Geek Warning, as you may or may not have noticed, and given this show isn't exactly cheap to, to produce, uh, it's really only through everyone's membership dues that we're able to bring this to you every week at all. So if you're not already a member, please consider signing up. Uh, we've got annual and monthly options now. And if you are already a member, thank you for supporting us. Uh, we really do appreciate you. And if you're happy with what you've been getting from us in return, uh, please consider telling your friends about Escape Collective. And maybe some of them can become members too. Uh, all right, on with the show. So yeah, last week was the annual Eurobike trade show. Uh, and while my original plan of having all three of us there for all three days didn't quite exactly pan out, um, as Ronan has already illustrated with that little 47 and a half thousand figure, uh, we did cover a lot of ground. So we did see a whole lot of stuff. Um, Ronan, I'm kind of curious, what was one of the more interesting things you saw at the show this year? Um, Oh, you're putting me on the spot now. I mean, um, as I told a few people uh, walking the the show, the you know everybody comes up to you. Oh, what, what have you seen? What's exciting? What are you looking at? Uh, and I usually just point at my camera and I say, I've seen so much, I can't remember. But when I start going through these photos, uh, that's that's when I'll that's when I'll know. I think uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that. Um, not all that special anything, but that simple little tool from Jabiomize that was 3D printed for finding the 80 millimeter wide point in the saddle, which you know, just a just a well, not just a random point. There was some thinking behind it, but um, also quite quite handy. I've had a few more tools pointed out to me since in the comments section of my gallery, uh, which do a similar feature and combine also a saddle height measurement tool within within a similar tool. So uh, that was kind of neat um the so i arrived late to the show and i think i spent the first three hours talking to four or five different brands and when i got to the end of those conversations i was informed that the 
product we had just talked about was under embargo until <laughs> I think the I think the so this was a show in June and I think the first one that I, t- I talked at length about I figured out I was told later was under embargo until November and the second one that I was talking about which was a pair of shoes that I quite like the look of uh, are under embargo until next March which I just found absolutely ludicrous why? why bring them to a show in june if they're under embargo well why should yeah why why take up um, the the time of media when the, it's that far out uh i don't know and yeah yeah um, i understand that they're there for for trade purposes that you have your distributors from around the world to show this product to and get orders for but i don't know to to take the time of media with a product that far out just seems it's pretty silly mm-hmm. i mean i i feel like the industry has gotten a lot better in recent years as far as that sort of thing goes but um clearly not everyone has gotten the memo hmm. the very briefly the other two things that i i quite like to look of was the new look 795 blade rs a uh, new lightweight arrow kind of do it all uh i think arrow light somebody had coined it way back when uh i like to look at that bike seven kilos apparently with pedals bottle cages and a computer mount what uh, brand of pedals Oh, I don't know. I'm guessing maybe. Uh, who knows? But there was, uh, it was a look. It was a look bike. Yeah, so. okay. <laughs> I didn't look yet. Um, Sorry. Uh, d- 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 now you've completely thrown me <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I like. I, I like. I just know that I was previously a big look fan. My first ever carbon frame was a look KG four nine six i think if i remember correctly um and i had sort of felt that look had lost her way a little bit in recent years and i don't know if they'd lost their way or they were like pushing the envelope so far in design that they were just <coughs> too f- they were, the, the market wasn't ready for what they were bringing and perhaps they weren't also ready to manufacture what they were designing mm. um i think ronan i think you're being very diplomatic and you're being very diplomatic in saying that the bikes recently were pretty ugly <laughs> Um, beauties in the eye of the beholder, James. It was it was you. It was you who told me that. Um, yeah. The, the, there were other problems with looks of late that I found that uh, were not down to just the looks of no pun intended. Um, but this bike just seems like an all round, very sensibly designed, solid looking uh, bike. It is supposedly, uh, if I remember correctly. Fourteen percent stiffer, seven percent stiffer, and fourteen percent aerodynamic, or vice versa, uh, than the than the the outgoing seven nine five, and that's despite the fact that the you know the the tubes are much uh, much smaller profile on on this newer frame. So, uh, if all those claims are accurate, uh, it looks like a pretty pretty neat bike from look. I will say, disappointingly, the the new handlebar setup it looks like a sort of one piece design but it's actually a two piece um but there's no real benefit to that because there's no adjustment in this new two piece it's like a wide style uh you've got a like a, a wide style handlebar that goes into the stem and clamped together with a few few bolts and that but all the hoses are still running internally through both the handlebar and the stem and you've got no angle adjustment on the handlebar so not really quite sure what the benefit is with going to a two-piece oh, there well, um, huh. yeah i guess you can well, change stem length without changing your bar width or you can change a bar yeah without the stem. that's true yeah yeah mm. but but you would still need to you know break the hoses and 
be yeah. metering and yeah. Fine. yeah. It's probably it's probably a manufacturing benefit to them rather than a benefit to the consumer. It's like it's a skew, know, yeah. it's a skew benefit, an yeah. SKU benefit, basically. Yeah, mm. yeah, fewer molds. Um, yeah. On a similar note, three T had their new Exploro Race Max there with fully internal cable routing. Now uh, it's sort of they've ditched the 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 hoses run through the the top tube, which was a bit of an eyesore previously. Um, and they've done that with a new stem. Now, it was a prototype stem that they had on the stand, but that runs the, the hoses externally under the stem. Uh, so they're completely out of sight, um, but you can change stem length without um, without having to, to, to you know, re-bleed your, your brakes or whatever. Um, and better yet, they have, they have managed to do all that without increasing the width of the head tube at all. And, and I was chatting to Jared Vrooman on the stand. He was saying, look, there's no sense in going to internally rooted uh, cables if you're going to make your head tube wider because it just, mm. you know, whatever gain you're getting, you're losing. Um, so they've done that and they've kept the pretty narrow head tube that the, the Explorer had. Uh, and then finally, and nice things that I've seen at Eurobike, uh, Marcel Kittle and Tony Martin's new kids' bikes are... are uh, I, they look I really, really nice. They are really nice and actually also really, really well thought out. Um I mean, given my experience working with Sustrans in the past and working in schools, uh, there was there was a time where we used to give every kid in each school that we worked with a high vis vest coming into winter time, so that you know they'd be a bit more visible on the on the journey to school. And especially when we were asking them to walk and scoot and cycle to school, we found that was important. Um, but we every year we did that, we got a bit of kickback on social media from people saying that it's not the kid's job to be more visible, it's the driver's job to be more responsible, which I 100% agree with, but at the same time... Um, can't hurt. Yeah, I th- I, yeah it, it, it definitely can't hurt uh, and, and any extra measures. And the kids love getting these jackets, so that was that was also cool. Um, so I'm just explaining that before I've, you know, first of all, going to the, the bikes that Marcel Kittle and Tony Martin have, have helped develop there. Um the big, big focus on them is visibility. So they've got this huge rear light built into the the seat stays, uh, which looks pretty cool, but also is pretty functional. Although I did kind of wonder, this the seat stays are at a very low angle, and perhaps that puts the light out of sight a little bit. Maybe I'm not quite sure. But anyway, the other big thing about it was the paint uh, was developed that it's highly reflective, also, so car lights shine on it uh, should should uh, illuminate them quite a bit. And then they're just really well made, really well designed. There's a big, big focus on uh, recyclability and 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 being able to recycle these frames into new frames, not just downcycling them into some uh, lampshade or something, but actually remaking new bikes with, with the frames when they're recycled. Uh, were they affordable? Uh, you've caught me there. I can't quite remember off the top of my head. <laughs> okay. they were. And define affordable, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> did, did, um, did you speak to anyone there about sort of what the motivation was for those particular two people to develop a line of kids' bikes? Uh, I spoke to Marcel Kittle himself, um, and I have it on a recording here somewhere. Uh, I haven't actually written up that gallery yet, so I haven't listened back to that yet. But, I mean, from what I can remember off the top of my head, Kittle was sort of saying, look, here, look, we we just want to, uh, we wanted to build really good bikes for kids, um, and they have no interest in developing adults' bikes. They may, they may going forward, uh, at the moment, they've got twenty inch and twenty four inch, if I remember correctly, uh, sized 
kids' bikes, and they may develop one for like teenagers and and like the group of kids who may end up with their bikes right now. That when they get to secondary school or a bit older, that they have a a Lion as the 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 brand name is Lion Bikes, so that that those kids who have one right now would have one to grow into in future. But they they have no plans to to go into uh, adults bikes in the future. Um, twenty four inch and twenty seven point five inch at the moment according to okay. uh road.cc uh and because they're a british publication their their listing bikes start at uh prices will start at 829 british pounds so, i mean that's a pretty high end bike that's it's that's, a fairly high end bike but i would say you know looking not, at yeah it's not it's not crazy. it's not ridiculous i mean but looking yeah. at kind of the i guess if you sort of want to describe them as sort of like the premium kid bike segment in general um oh sorry that was 829 euro it's 714 british pounds okay well still i mean it's 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 not outrageous by any means i would say for for that segment um but one thing that i always like to point out to people who um who kind of say that certain kids bikes are just way too expensive um i would say that if the bikes really are substantially better than what you can typically get like a big box store or whatever which they usually are um the bikes are a lot lighter usually so the kids are more likely to be able to ride them safely and be able to handle them safely um but the big thing is if you take care of them uh higher end kid bikes often have a much better resale value than you expect Mm -hmm. them to have um and plus oftentimes because kids are growing so quickly they're not really riding them for that long so they're they don't usually have that much wear on them either yeah what i used to sort of say to families when we were working in schools is you buy one good kid's bike and you can hand it down from one kid to the next uh, and then when you get to the end of that sort of process with whoever many kids you have in your family you can sell it on and it's actually still got a resale value whereas many of the bikes that I was having to try to piece back together um, you know they would come in they were not all that old sometimes even brand new Had you could tell it never been ridden mm. uh, but they were so poorly assembled brakes that didn't work uh, almost regardless of what you tried to do they were just pretty uh, pretty pretty poor bikes um, and you know they, they, they're still they're still costing you know three figures it's not like you're picking these bikes up for 50 quid or something they're you know 150 200 pound Um so yeah, you you go a bit more than that again, and you've actually got a bike that um, is safe to ride. Is is the big one for yeah. me? The other thing I'd say is like if you think about your own cycling, and if you were to ride a really a bike that is half your body weight with brakes that don't work, with gears that don't work, with grips that are uncomfortable to use, with pedals that you keep slipping on, would you enjoy cycling? And that's kind of how I would. Um, frame a lot of the kids bikes on the market is like you need you know you want to put your child on a bike that is going to encourage them to actually like cycling and if unless the bike you don't actually want that <laughs> yeah unless you, you don't want actually want it. them to ride a bike <laughs> yeah yeah uh yeah i think that's that's something also overlooked is like the cheap yep. bikes just fail to to bring joy that they should do 100%, and, 100%. and that's where the better bikes really do excel well and that that's one of the things i kind of wanted to talk about about Eurobike in general is it's always astounding to me, and this is again coming from you know looking at how things are in the U.S. market as far as how kid bikes usually are. Um, it is astounding to me just the breadth of selection for nicer kid bikes that you see at Eurobike. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just absolutely astounding. There are so many different companies that offer like legitimately good bikes for kids. 
Um, and there is such a huge range of selection. Like you've got, you know, mountain bikes, you've got cargo bikes for kids, so on and so forth. I mean, there's just so many. Um, and I know this is one brand that um, our former coworker, Dave Everett, used to talk about a lot, um, Early Rider. I think they're based in the UK, I believe. Um, but uh, I was actually looking at some of their mountain bikes, uh, partially because our, our, our daughter is going to be outgrowing her 24-inch hardtails pretty soon. But um, they have they have a whole bunch of legit full suspension mountain bikes for kids that – Granted, they are quite expensive. I mean, these were like 2,400 euros. Um, but they are bikes that I would say seem to be on par as far as quality and design and construction and everything goes with pretty good adult bikes. And as the parent of a kid who really actually enjoys mountain biking and and she is going out with friends and groups and stuff like that on legitimate trails, like the, the quality of the bike is really super important, like you said, Dave, to just their level of enjoyment. But I just think it's super cool that that if you're in if you're in in Europe, uh, you've got an awful lot of selection. Yeah, I, I purposely didn't go near the early rider booth because I didn't want to be uh, tempted into into what I might have to spend money on next. But uh, my daughter has a Hornet Hero, I think it's called at the moment. Before that, she had a Hornet Aero balance bike, and those things are also just so well made. And actually, watching the Unchained Tour de France. Uh, Netflix series there recently. Uh, I seen Gary and Thomas's kid has the same balance bike, and I was like, "Hmm, there." That's mm-hmm. <laughs> I was I was keeping a wee out for little tech tidbits that happened to pop up uh, in the background, and that was one of the things that, that I that I noticed. Yeah, I mean, my kid's on a on a womb hardtail mountain bike right now, twenty four inch wheels. It's super light, um, hydraulic disc brakes, um, you know. A, air sprung suspension fork it's quite light and good gearing all the other stuff but the biggest thing is that she really really enjoys riding it and at her mm-hmm. weight and size and everything she can actually handle it yeah. without again dave like you were saying without it being like it's half of her uh, half of her body weight i dare say we're preaching to the converted here um <laughs> i say mo- <laughs> most people listen to this podcast are probably gonna um it's maybe the people who is, don't listen to this true. podcast that, that are buying true. kids' bikes that mm. we need to we need that to is, communicate that is to. True. But, so if you're listening to this, share it with uh, your kids' entire school. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, point being, at least for the U.S. market, I would love to see more brands come here uh, that offer really good kids' bikes. And uh, and obviously, those those brands aren't going to come over here uh, if there isn't a market for them. Like uh, Isla Bikes, for example, was uh, my kid's first uh, like a real pedal bike and it was amazing. Um, but they, uh, they pulled out of the U S market. I think Isla bikes went out of, did they go out of business completely? I can't remember now. Ooh, I, uh, I know they're out of the U S market in general, but anyway, um, but I would love to see more brands here in general. Um, no, so anyway, bikes is still going. Okay. Awesome. Good. Um, uh, kind of looking at some sort of, uh, I guess, kind of opposite end of the spectrum, so to speak. Um, one of the things that I saw at the show that was super intriguing was um, uh, an, a new electronic 2x12 road group set from, uh, I believe they're a Chinese brand called L2. Um, so my ex- my first experience with L2 was with the mechanical shifting components that was on that lovely, lovely Superstrata that I reviewed a few months ago. Um but they have a new electronic group set now, and they didn't have it on a on a demo bike that you could ride around the demo area, so to speak. Um, but they did have it set up on uh, an indoor trainer inside the show. It actually seems to work pretty well. Um, 
So it's not a complete group set. You have to supply your own crank set, chain, and cassette. Um, but it is apparently designed to work with um, common 12-speed spacing, which uh, I've actually never really completely checked, but I believe SRAM, Shimano, and Campagnolo all have pretty close sprocket-to-sprocket spacing, um, if not quite identical. But uh, but anyway, the shifting was actually really good, and the big thing is that the cost is phenomenal. So pair shifters, wireless, um, then electronic front and rear derailleur uh, linked together, wired with a single battery, um, and then hydraulic disc brakes. All that together has a retail price of 595 euros. My biggest question on this is I thought there were enough patents in place from the big three that would stop them from being able to sell this group in, in Europe and America, and that would kind of limit them to always being sold like consumer direct out of China. Um, they're Chinese, right, as a company? I believe they're Chinese. That is a good question, Dave, and yeah. I asked them about that. Um, they seem to be under the impression that they can sell uh, outside of Asia without any issue. Like they seem to believe that they haven't infringed on any patents. And oh, okay. word on the Good street on is that it was designed by a couple of engineers who I think, I want to say they were maybe XRAM engineers perhaps. Um, but anyway, they, they seem to believe that they are free and clear on the patent front. Of course, that's wow. not necessarily up to them to decide. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, but I'm, I'm pretty eager to, bring uh bring one of these in if possible yeah. if i can if i can get one in Sounds because, like you should um like i said it does seem to work pretty well uh the thing that i was particularly impressed about was just sort of the the finish and design of the levers because i feel like that's usually some place that you often kind of find lacking in less expensive stuff um like the hoods actually fit on the lever bodies really nice and tightly like they, there was no squirm when you kind of really grab the hood and try and torque it on the body um the the transition between the 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 hood uh, the the hoods and the bar was really nice and smooth. The shape was really good. There was like the nice texture on the on the on the rubber and everything. Like it just looked really nicely finished. Um, the front rear the front rear derailleurs kind of had a bit more of an industrial look to them, so that wasn't quite as good. But um, but yeah, overall, I'm super intrigued. Hmm. Uh, the the price you give it does that can, that include brakes calibers? And- so it's supposedly included brake calibers. Yes, that. That would be the question for me. Like I, I, you know, presume the electronics end of it. Um, you know, they could they could probably hit that, and and the shifting and that. You know, a, a little front derailleur seems to be the challenge for for many brands, apart from Shimano. But you know, braking power, braking modulation. What's that going to be like? That would be, and then you know, going a bit further, which tools? You know, is it? Which bleed kits are we going to need? Is it an entirely separate bleed kit? Is it you know that a very very small problem? But that, that's a couple of questions that popped into my mind. No idea, absolutely no mm-hmm. idea whatsoever. But I'm eager to find out. So hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I have contact information from them, and we had a nice little chat at the show. So hopefully, we can make something happen because, uh, as far as the electronic shifting front goes, that is definitely one of the more intriguing things I've seen on the market lately. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, uh, impressively priced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of the, the the levers at least look like some sort of mash of the previous Campag ones and Shimano's shifter I, blades. I would, I would say they're they're most similar to newer Shimano stuff as far as kind of the the shape and size of the lever bodies and um, where the buttons are placed. It's very Shimano esque, um, which again, Dave brings up the question of patents, um, which. <laughs> mm. 
I don't know how that is going to pan out just now. So we will find out. Um, <laughs> at that at that price, it's going to be. You know, can can you imagine if it's? You know, it, well, it, I'm sure it's going to be perfectly functional and all that. But just how close can it get to the likes of Shimano? Uh, and I don't know how close it needs to get if it's that well priced. Well, and and plus the thing that um, the thing that a lot of people I feel like need to be reminded of sometimes is when it comes to shifting performance, the the shifters and derailleurs absolutely matter, sure. Um, but a lot of that is baked into the the chain and uh, cassette sprockets and the chain rings and how all that stuff's meant to go together and like the, the gates and ramps that they stick and all that stuff. Um, so on this setup that they had at the Eurobike stand, what was kind of interesting is that they stuck on a SRAM Force crank, and I think it was a SRAM Force cassette, and I want to say it was like a KMC. It was def- it was def- some mishmash of components, and I have no idea how it would handle under load, um, but just pedaling it, pedaling it uh, again stationary at, at their booth, shifting was actually pretty decent. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Um, uh, like I said, I hope hope I can manage to get a set in. I'll stick it on something and see how it, all that I go uh, all that goes. But yeah, being able to combine those components with uh, like a I don't know, like a Shimano one hundred and five cranking cassette and chain and that sort of thing, I feel like that could potentially lead to a pretty killer combo for not a whole lot of money. You seem a lot more positive after that short ride than I was after a short ride in a new wireless group set recently. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. A new wireless group set. So, I mean, Shimano came out a little while ago and SRAM doesn't have anything too new. Does That must be Campagnolo well, you're referring to. Okay. Um, no, both SRAM and Campag have a new group set recently. So, well, that's true. Uh, yeah. Well, let's, let, let's, just say, let's just say the experience, uh, let's just say it was probably a different ratio of expectations versus real world experience mm. here so uh my expectations for this thing were non-existent so i would say mm. that as of right now my uh the real world performance seems to have exceeded my non-existent expectations but yeah we'll see um but uh speaking of bigger brands so one thing that ronan and i unfortunately missed at the show uh unfortunately we couldn't quite get to every booth um but a couple of other publications did find an example uh Seemingly production ready of Shimano's pretty highly anticipated 12-speed 105 mechanical road group set. Um, so again, we don't have an article on this on Escape Collective because we didn't see them ourselves. But you can go find an article it was, somewhere else. It was actually whooped off the wasn't it the Cortex? The Cortex, yeah, yep. and it, it was it was taken away from the Cortex down pretty I'm sure quickly. Sure, it was. Uh, I'm there sure was there was a there was a 12-speed GRX group set on another stand somewhere as well, and it it disappeared pretty quickly as well. Um, <laughs> I, I bumped into better shifting Terry at the show, got give him his high five in person, and that, uh, and he had, he had told me that these things were on stands, but they were already gone at that point. Yeah. So, oh well. Um, but next year when we send 19 people to Eurobike, I'm sure we'll catch a lot more, <laughs> st- a lot more things. But anyway, uh, so this group said, um, we don't have really a whole lot to add aside from the sort of sneak, sneak info that was already out in the, out in the ether before. Um, uh, but yeah, it's two by 12. Um, you know, now we know what it looks like though. The, the levers actually don't seem to appear all that different from what's already out there in the current 105 stuff. Um, the rear derailleur has a fairly long cage. It's designed to go around an 1136 tooth cassette. So they're definitely going for a lot of gearing range here for kind of newer road riders, I think. Um, and 
because the cassette's built around an 11 tooth uh, sprocket, then I'm going to guess that this thing is not going to be uh, built around Shimano's newer kind of micro spline esh free hub body. It may, I think it might still just go on an HG free hub body, which would make a lot of people awfully happy. Um, and I don't know, I mean, aside from the fact that it's just sort of like black painted components, sort of like what we come to expect from less expensive stuff these days. I mean, it seems to look pretty okay. Um, so I'm kind of bummed I missed out on it in person and we don't have any official info yet, but um, I, I don't have any reason to suspect that this won't be another super popular word group set from Shimano when it comes out. Yeah. It's it's also it's also along something we discussed two weeks ago with the launch of SRAM Apex is that it's Shimano's market now. Like SRAM's effectively pulled out of the whole two by road market, mechanical road market. Apex is a one by group really aimed at, at gravel. Uh and yeah, Campagnolo is nowhere to be seen at this price point. So uh I think yeah, it's it's gonna be Shimano versus the likes of L2 and Microshift, Microshift yep. and and all these other brands that have no credibility uh, in the road space that, that people will be attracted to buy, they'll need convincing for. So, I mean, yeah, Shimano's, yeah, it, even if it's halfway decent, it's they're going to sell a lot of bikes with this. Well, just uh, the halfway decent, but do you think if you're currently, um, let's say, a mechanical diehard and like myself, you maybe have record 12-speed or you perhaps have the last Durace Mechanical. Do you think this script set's going to do anything for us? No, no. Probably not. No, um, <laughs> no I, think it'll be, I think it'll be too heavy for the people that, that are, are used to high-end mechanical group sets. I think they're not going to necessarily like the weights of this. I think there probably are areas you could save weight, like you could run a Durace crank and a you know, Altegra Durace cassette and all that. But yeah, I... I still think overall it'll won't please the the people that are coming yep. from such high yep. end groups. I would tend to agree with you on that one. Um, Even if it's just a branding so thing. One thing that uh, Ronan and I both saw at the show and talked to some people about um, that seems really, really potentially super exciting is this new Schwabi Aerothan tire concept that they previewed. Uh, so this was something that was behind hmm. a big sheet of glass. That unfortunately had a big gap on the side of it that I could reach my hand and camera through, thankfully. Um, but uh, Schwabi provided virtually no information on this thing, aside from calling it the Aerothan tire. Uh, aside from saying it is uh, claim, has a claim weight of 165 grams for a 28 mil tubeless road tire. Um, and then they were saying that wow. it is made using Aerothan material. So take that as you will. So I don't know. It seems so, kind so of Aerothan's the TPU tube, right? Correct. It's, it's like a the, polyurethane. The um, yep. 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 So um, I can't imagine they're making the casing itself out of that stuff. So it's not really, I, I don't know, maybe they are, but um, the fact that they are able to use polyurethane mm. in a tire uh, is very intriguing because just based on what we know about polyurethane inner tubes versus butyl inner tubes and things like rolling resistance and puncture resistance and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this could be amazing. And what's the, do we know what the, the, the desired outcome is? Is it, it's weight or I guess given that, that weight you fit, that weight figure you just shared is pretty impressive. So I guess that's a, a key benefit and what maybe air retention. Definitely well. lower weight. Um, and, perhaps air retention but i'm also thinking there could there very well could be a big rolling Mm. resistance benefit as well uh depending again this is kind of based on how 
you know, the sort of the performance metrics that we see in butyl versus polyurethane inner tubes. Um, so if you were to apply similar characteristics to a tire, then these could be faster rolling and lighter and have better puncture resistance while having at least as good air retention. Mm. Uh, so this is behind glass. Any word on availability? Uh, oh, cool. I think they were sort of teasing like March twenty twenty four, just like the shoes were in. Yeah, so. <laughs> I think they were. I think they were sort of teasing like a like maybe an official debut next year or sometime. Okay, all right. So um, still, it was just a teaser. It was just a teaser, but it definitely was a real tire behind mm. that behind, mm. behind that glass panel, um, which makes me wonder if it is already being tested out there somewhere. Interesting. The uh, the glass the glass case did say I'm just looking at it here unrivaled rolling resistance, uh, which sounds promising. Although it says without compromising puncture protection and grip, so I don't know if that's like unrivaled rolling resistance, full stop, or if it's unrivaled rolling resistance in a tire that also has considerations for <laughs> getting a bit into the weeds there. But certainly, it. I mean, I think I included it in my gallery, and I think I said something like, you know, if if this proves to be accurate all these claims and uh, this actually does come to fruition it yeah who know who knows where they could, this could go uh speaking of i mean that sounds awesome and i'm very intrigued to see where the, this tech goes because it, it does sound like it could be a pretty big step change in in tubeless um but speaking of step changes in tubeless i'm looking at the show notes and uh James, I'm assuming this is you. You've said Newman going too far with error gains. What's, oh. uh, well, obviously, <laughs> obviously too, when he said too far, it had to be James because that wouldn't be no, me. No, I know it wouldn't would be you. And there's a little YouTube <laughs> yeah. video explaining it. Uh, this is with definitely... uh, Mikey, who, who's a friend of mine on Instagram. And uh, yeah, it's. Uh, can you explain this to us? This definitely falls into the realm of marginal gains. Um, uh, so I think we've always known arrow weenies in particular have always known that, uh, basically anything with a round cross section that's moving through the air is just aerodynamically very dirty. Um, and that would include a typical valve stem versus whether it be from an inner tube or tubeless valve stem, whatever. Um, but that little cylindrical thing that you have sticking out of your rim is aerodynamically dirty. So there have been various solutions to try and fix that from, uh, you know, I know, I know that we've seen certain things like aero valve covers and things like that. Um, but the folks at Newman, um, they have some system where, uh, there's basically no exposed valve at all. Um, I would say this d- certainly does not seem to be something that is aimed at the everyday rider, just mm. for its level of convenience. Um, but basically what you have is you have, you have a very, the way they described it is they have a very, very short Automotive style, so which leads me to believe it's a Schrader valve. Yes. Uh, it's a Schrader valve that is, uh, that's screwed or is somehow installed into the rim. And then uh, to inflate or deflate the tire, there is a special adapter that you screw in. So it, it's in concept, it's sort of akin to the early days of deeper section aero wheels where you were running valve stems that were just too short and you had to run uh, some sort of valve extender. Uh, so it's kind of like that, uh, except it's a special valve uh, extender that you stick on there to inflate or deflate the tire. Um, and then once you kind of have your desired pressure, you take off that adapter and you have this little rubber plug that just sort of mounts nearly flush with the surface of the rim. Um, yeah, it's uh, intriguing. I don't, I don't know what their claimed arrow benefit uh, is, but 
uh, as far as like, you know, watts or anything like that. But uh, I suppose if you're looking for every last bit of savings, that is the next thing on your list. Mm. I, mm. I don't I don't hate it. I I think it for for race use it kind of for race makes use sense that is to the, me. That mm. is the key phrase right there. The thing that I worry about is how many people are going to look at that and be like, "Oh, I want to go faster." And they're going to run mm. that on their regular road bike yeah. and get a flat anywhere, and then everyone around them has every single thing available to have them <laughs> change a flat except for that thing and then they're just stuck. Um mm. I wonder I if, know, you if you're could, running that, yeah. you shouldn't. I mean, you should have that adapter in your. The 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 pain for me would be having that adapter in both your saddlebag or toolkit and mm. on your pump at, at home. Uh, and I'm kind of wondering why not just like a, a lot of the UK time trials now will run shorter valve stems anyway, and just have a little adapter that they pop on to to pump it up. Same thing, and what you know, those little valve extenders are much more common, much more readily available. Yeah, I mean, it depends with Presto. I mean, if it's got a removable valve core, there is the risk of removing the valve yeah, core yeah. while you use the extender, whereas this, using a, a Schrader valve, kind of removes that risk and you can still pull the valve core. I think it's it's quite an, an, a smart use of a Schrader valve. Um, I I also wonder if you do get a flat, whether you could just put a regular inner tube, the, the, a valve long enough to poke through the rim into no, it. I'm sure you, like I'm a, sure you a could. Presto. I'm sure that's so, possible. Um, yeah. But I mean, you still have to get the valve out. Yeah, um, and I'm yeah, not we entirely, don't know what that looks it's like. Not, so, yeah, it's not yeah. entirely clear to me how that is inserted in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say that was something intriguing that I saw that was maybe not super high on my list of things that I want to put on one of my own bikes. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, I do appreciate that companies like Newman are continuing to find little gains here and there. Yeah, I will. I will just say my current solution is to have a valve that is just absolutely on the limit of being long enough just to uh, be a bit taller than the rim and then have one of those Silca valve covers so they're really easy. To, I use uh, tub tape so it kind of just pops on and off. And then because obviously the valve core is so, there's so little of it sticking through the rim, I just use one of the disc uh, crack pipe mm-hmm. uh, pump adapters uh, to reach it. And mm-hmm. that is, I think, a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, yeah, not not super high on my list of um, – not super high on my want list. Uh, one thing that is pretty high on my want list, however, that I am super, super keen to try out at some point um, – Dave, I think you've heard about this already, but um, Nikolai, uh, it's a company that is known for higher-end welded aluminum mountain bike frames – uh, definitely known for pushing the envelope and being kind of early adapters and that sort of thing for a lot of stuff. They had uh, they had an, an enduro bike on their stand called the Nucleon 16 Super, uh, which uh, the bike itself was pretty intriguing, um, but it's far more interesting because of the drivetrain that is on there. So the drivetrain that's on there is the it's the, the super drive concept from um, I think it's like from Lao Canadian. I think it's Lau, a Canadian brand. Lao bikes, yeah, Lau or yeah. Lal bikes. Yeah. I can't yeah. be sure how to describe it. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you haven't heard of that thing already, it's definitely very well worth checking out. Um, it looks really, really wild. Visually, it is a huge departure from the norm. But mm. what's really clever about it is it is basically just sort of a deconstructed standard derailleur. Um, so normally in a, in a regular rear derailleur, you have uh, your parallelogram linkage, you have an upper 
guide pulley, and then you have a lower uh, idler or tension pulley. Uh, that's all together in one unit. And what the SuperDrive does is it separates those components. So you have the tension pulley up front, uh, up near the crank, and then you have the sort of the upper half of the rear derailleur. Um, but what's cool about this is the way it's mounted because it is mounted in between the seat stay and chain stay. So it's a super, super low profile setup. It doesn't stick out very far from the frame at all. And there is nothing dangling below the axle. So if you are in an area where you're kind of prone to rear derailleur damage from snagging something on a rock or root or whatever, this basically takes that completely out of the equation. Uh, the way it mounts is super slick. It doesn't mount on some spindly, spindly little derailleur hanger. Um, so much in the way that SRAM touts its new transmission stuff for being super strong in, in the event of a, of a direct hit. Um, this stuff should also be super strong in terms of a direct hit. Um, and functionally, from what I can tell anyway, it really shouldn't shift any differently from a regular rear derailleur, uh, which I find pretty darn clever. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of many uh, derailleur alternatives hitting the market. Right? Like we've got quite a few gearbox solutions from like Effie Gear and from Pinion and uh the guys in australia out of uh uh trinity bikes trinity. um yeah mick williams uh yeah williams racing products i think is his offshoot brand is uh yeah they they have their own gearbox in in development it's it's a cool space it's it's very uh it's almost like a 90s mountain bikes kind of where everyone's playing with different ideas and recreating frames around it it's it's it quite, is it's quite cool to be a part of but what I like in particular about this setup is that um, while I love the idea of a, a self-contained gearbox setup, the issue there is, um, at least for non-electric powered bikes, um, there's an awful lot of drag in any yeah. sort of gearbox setup. Mm-hmm. Um, what's cool about the super drive is that you should, in theory, basically be able to achieve the same levels of drivetrain efficiency. Um, just You just sort of have some of the components moved around. Um, so it's basically all the positives and all the things that are familiar with a conventional derailleur drivetrain, but repackaged to give you a lot of the benefits of a gearbox setup. Yep. Yeah. So I like it. I think it's super neat. I'd love to try it out. So hopefully it's sometime soon I'll be able to, um, it is again, currently only integrated onto that one bike that I know about. Um, so Nikolai is like an early manufacturing partner with them. Uh, and it is on that enduro bike. Uh, so that's, Probably not something that we're going to be covering uh, firsthand on Escape Collective anytime soon. Um, but, oh man, if they ever integrate that into a cross-country bike, and I don't really see why they necessarily wouldn't, unless it's substantially heavier, but I don't think it necessarily has to be. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm super keen to try that thing out. It looks super cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a neat product. Speaking of, uh, I mean, we mentioned gearboxes. Is is now a, a good time to to talk about what Pinion's up to, or should we come back to that? Oh, no, I think it's always a good time to talk about gearboxes. All right. I, I actually briefly brought this up uh, in last week's podcast, but I didn't really, couldn't really explain what it was, just that Pinion were releasing, effectively, the market-first uh, combined gearbox and e-bike motor system. So what is this? Yeah, it's uh, it's called the MGU. So someone at, someone at Pinion is clearly an F1 fan. Um, so it's motor gearbox unit, if I remember correctly. And essentially what it is, it it takes pinions, basically existing 12 speed internal gearbox system, but now it is coupled to an e-assist motor. So now you have an e-assist 12 speed 
gearbox setup all in this self-contained unit that is centrally mounted into a mid-drive system. Um, what is super neat about it is um, I've always been curious about pinion bikes uh, because I love the idea of that self-contained 12-speed drivetrain. Uh, lots and lots of benefits there. I mean, it's, again, it has a lot of friction. Um, they're kind of heavy. But the thing is, when you couple that to e-assist, a lot of those negatives uh, don't necessarily go away. I mean, there are still effects on things like range and that sort of thing, but they become a lot less detrimental because you can mask a lot of that because you have a little extra power. Um, and what's neat is that this is basically just an all-in-one turnkey solution that Pinion is using, or Pinion is offering to to bicycle brands as a way to have a e-assist, like I said, e-assist 12-speed gearbox setup on a mountain bike. Um, I guess you could use it on a, on a road bike or gravel bike too, um, but mountain bikes is definitely where they're going with this. Mm-hmm. And uh, just like other gearbox setups, uh, pinion particularly, but for mid-drive setup, it removes a lot of unsprung weight from, it removes a lot of unsprung weight from the back end of the bike. So in, in theory, the suspension works better. Uh, there is in theory, less maintenance involved. Um, it's, it, it seems pretty cool. Uh, I love the idea of it. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Uh, it does seem like the, the future of e-bikes is, is what they've kind of released here. I can certainly imagine this becoming the new norm amongst a lot of other brands uh moving forward the the all-in-one system yeah totally um and to add further credence to this concept of the all-in-one system so um i think a lot of people listening to the podcast will probably also be familiar with this driven drivetrain that uh ceramic speed spun off uh two years ago now maybe i can't remember how many years ago it's been Mm. um but where that used that used to be uh, that was touted as this ultra low friction drivetrain system um, shaft drive using a whole bunch of cartridge bearings and stuff like that. It was basically pegged as this super high performance thing, either for the track or they were developing this shif- shiftable setup. Um, and essentially, the problem that they ran into was um, apparently they got quite far into the prototype stage. And when it came around to figuring out, figure out how much this thing was going to cost to manufacture. Uh, apparently it was astronomical. So, um, uh, yeah, so they ended up having to pivot a bit, so to speak. Um, but I guess when they were doing all this drivetrain work, another concept that they had was this all-in-one system that they're still calling driven, uh, which is a little confusing, but, um, it is, how should I describe this on a podcast? So, um, it is basically a gear differential setup, uh, that, is oriented such that it works as a continuously variable transmission. Uh, they're saying it's very similar to the CVT that's in the Toyota Prius. Um, and that is being coupled to either a shaft or chain drive. You can do it either way. Uh, and it's linked to a uh, one electric motor to provide uh, additional electric assistance. And then there's a secondary electric motor that changes the way the two uh, opposite gears rotate relative to each other to effectively give you your gear ratios. So um, a little difficult to describe, unfortunately, in person uh, over a podcast. So I do have pictures of it on uh, in, in the tech gallery on Escape Collective. I think that might be in part four is what that listing does. Even um, the pictures don't really help to explain it. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit true. I mean, really what it needs is a, is an animated GIF or something like that. Which yeah. uh, It I'm needs sure a 1930s instructional video. It does. It does. It does. Like a wooden mock-up or something like that. Yes. But anyway, yes. but that's another example of an of a, of a of a gearbox and motor all-in-one system, and it it seems to be 
where a lot of these systems are wanting to go. And I can see why there's a lot of appeal. It's just because it's essentially this box that you stick onto a frame and then you, all of a sudden you have a, a multi-gear ratio e-bike. Um, so Driven is not making any claims as far as uh, like mechanical efficiency, as far as friction and stuff like that goes, because uh, I find it kind of interesting that they went from this like ultra, ultra low friction drivetrain system to a, a whole system of like bevel gears that inherently has a lot of friction in it. But again, when you add a motor on it, a lot of that issue goes away. So um, yeah, kind of, kind of neat. But uh, I, I think that is those two are maybe the first two all in one gearbox and motor setups that we have seen so far. But I think it is safe to say that they will definitely not be the last ones. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, and I think also like we're, we're sort of, Looking at these through the the lens of of performance bikes, which we're we're normally looking at, but the perhaps the biggest opportunity, especially with these two, is just in terms of e um, mobility bikes about town, like in terms of share town town bikes and share bikes and share scheme bikes. And the big problem that they're finding with those at the moment is just the the sheer cost of maintaining those fleets. Uh, and anything that might actually just reduce that a bit. Uh, the folks at Driven told me that uh, on average at the moment, some of the, some of the cities who have those uh, share bikes, there's something like, is it on average one mechanic for every 120 bikes, which is a huge number when you actually take a step back and think how many of those bikes probably exist in, say, somewhere like Paris or something like that. Um, so the big drive is to you know, try to try to make these things more durable and require less maintenance and these sorts of things seem like you know if you can integrate those into those types of bikes Mm. perhaps that's actually where the biggest potential is yeah yeah maybe and and the reality is if you could improve those characteristics in a performance bike too i don't think anyone would complain about having their nice bike require less maintenance in general so uh, i I would say that overall no one's going to complain about that sort of improvement and that's well, where this technology has to start, to right? It it has to it has to start at the high end because something like the the new Pinion MGU is it's it's an incredibly expensive product. So you know it has to it has to start at the high end of the mountain bike market, and then it'll probably trickle to very high end cargo bikes. And uh, you know eventually that that style of technology will be adopted and trickled down to more widespread use. But I mean, all of this stuff starts at the performance end. Oh my God, speaking of cargo bikes, Dave. So Eurobike <laughs> mm. had an entire, basically an entire hall dedicated to cargo, the cargo category. Can I can I rewind a bit from there? So, what? so what? we've we've mentioned a lot about we've we've spoken a lot about Eurobike. Ronan mentioned is was it forty seven thousand steps? Mm-hmm. So, so Eurobike is there's nineteen hundred exhibitors. And the the trade visitors, I think, is like thirty two, thirty three thousand. I think was the count. And then they have roughly thirty thousand consumers as well visit on the consumer days. So just to set the scene here, um, how much of of those nineteen thousand exhibitors do you think were kind of playing in the cargo bike space, James? Is it like a quarter? No, I don't think it was that much. I mean, okay. 1,900 exhibitors was an awful lot. And that also includes all the little like OEM suppliers of yeah. various little like yeah, bolts little and tourism and stuff like that. Things as well. I, I um, wonder, does it also include like the stands that have four brands on one booth? Is it, yeah, like, it, possibly. But, but either way, yeah. I, would, I, yeah. I would say what would be a, a more telling metric would be 
potentially sort of the amount of floor space that was mm -hmm. dedicated to cargo. Um, and I mean, it was, this would just be a very, very rough estimate, but I would have, to, I would say somewhere between like, I would say somewhere between like a quarter and a sixth or something like that. Like a pretty substantial portion of the total shore. Which is just four cargo bikes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a I have a cargo bike gallery coming up uh, sometime this week on Escape Collective, so uh, that'll that'll be dropping pretty soon. Um, but there are so so many cargo bike options at Eurobike. Um, granted, a lot of them struck me as potentially not being very good. Um, I, the impression that I get is that there are an awful lot of companies doing cargo bikes who spend a lot of time figuring out how, figuring out how to carry things and or people and unfortunately seem to have less expertise in knowing how to make a good bicycle um, or tricycle as the case may be. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, that's neither here nor there. I mean, the, the, the point is there are, like we were talking about kid bikes earlier, there's seemingly an even bigger potential uh, as far as how many cargo bike options were out there. There's just all sorts of different ways for people to carry passengers and things um, and clearly Eurobike being an increasingly mobility focused show, um, and particularly a European mobility focused show there, the, the bike industry obviously sees an awful lot of potential and uh, growth potential in particular, uh, of supplying people with cargo bikes, because ultimately that's going to be the way that you get people out of their cars. Yeah. I, I've ridden in the front of yours, James. You've you've taken me for a ride. <laughs> yes, and, you have. Uh, which was great. Was it an Urban Arrow? What do you have? Yep, it was. Yeah, an Urban Arrow. Uh, what at Eurobike did you see that had you most willing, uh, most keen to sit in the front of and and yell faster, faster? <laughs> uh, you know, I am still most intrigued with the bikes from Cago. So it's C A space G O. Uh, so this is actually an offshoot brand from. Frank Arnold, who is the guy uh, behind the Ergon brand, who is actually the brother of Roman Arnold, who runs Kenyon. Um, but Kagos, uh, they officially launched last year, I think, or the year before. I can't remember now. But it, uh, their first bike was a, a very urban aero-esque uh, cargo bike. It's a, a, a Bakvitz type bike with a big foam box up front and designed to carry, uh, designed to carry you know, smaller passengers, kids specifically. Um, this year, they had another cargo bike concept that was very, very different, uh, although it's one that I'm starting to see a little bit more traction in in general in the cargo space. Um, it was sort of like a – almost kind of like a double-decker cargo format. Like you had um, – it was a longer front end, and the steering hardware and the actual fork stuff was was connected by – a kind of cable and spool mechanism, kind of like what Cargo uses already in their box bike and what some other brands use. Um, but then you had this lower platform that was designed to carry heavier stuff. Um, and a lot of these bikes are designed around uh, this thing called a Euro crate. It's sort of like this very standard, uh, very standard in Europe anyway, um, sort of uh, like shipping container sort of thing. Uh, it's just it's just a very common size crate for for a lot of common goods. Uh, so there was a lower platform that was designed to carry something like that. And then an upper platform um, 
that is sort of like long tail-ish, uh, but on the front. And then you had all sorts of different attachments that you can put on there. Like you can put a big car, uh, a big platform on there. So you can put another Euro crate up there or, you know, some other, like a big, uh, a big basket or whatever. Uh, it, it was, it's kind of funky looking in terms of profile. It's sort of hunchbacky. Um, but that was one of the only bikes that I actually rode in the demo area. And it was it actually rode surprisingly nicely. Uh, the cable steering system that they have is pretty awesome. Um, it, it's actually quite comfortable and the handling was not all that super goofy. It probably, it probably helps a lot that I'm coming off of an urban arrow that I own myself. Um, but that was one that I'm really intrigued with. Um, uh, you know, had I been looking for a bike earlier and my kid's nine and probably not going to be probably not going to want to ride around in that urban arrow for too much longer before she thinks it's not cool anymore. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, had I been looking for something a few years ago and had it existed, then I would have been, chopping at the bit to get one of those cargo FS uh, box style bikes. Um, but this hunchback bike seems pretty neat. Uh, I don't know if they're going to like me calling it a hunchback bike, but that's kind of what it looks like. It, it's a little ungainly looking, but um, but the concept is super cool. And th- that's actually something that they are considering bringing into the U.S. Uh, mostly because it, yeah, it, mostly because it's something that is – from a logistical standpoint, much, much easier to ship overseas than that huge box bike. Um, and uh, it sounds like I may actually be getting a sample to review based on mm. what they were telling me. So uh, yeah, that right. would be a super cool thing to get to get going. You'll have to put the L2 drivetrain onto it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and whatever other whatever – other, uh, uh, you know, test bits I can find. Like you know, maybe, maybe I can find some Aero 20-inch wheels or something. Yeah, without valves. Without valves, indeed, you got to maximize the electrical yep. efficiency there. Yeah. Should we uh, should we move on to what's on our mind, or we do should. we have more we should. to to discuss from the Eurobike land? I mean, there is definitely more that we could discuss, but I think it's probably time to wrap up the Eurobike segment of the show. Mm. I mean, the, the, we've already have a whole bunch of tech galleries that have already been published on Escape Collective. Uh, so make sure you head over to the site to check those out, uh, and there's still a whole bunch more to come. So there'll be more. Uh, hopefully we'll have them wrapped up before the start of the tour, although I'm not quite sure we'll get them all out. But, uh, but yeah, we've still got a few more to come. A quick mention just for the story that I published today on the smallest thing that I've seen at Eurobike, which was the VeloPass sticker, uh, which is quite a – yeah, we're not going to now, but just a neat one for people to look into there. It's uh, basically an NFC chip that you can uh, install on your bike, and that's sort of the – that's basically what it is, but VeloPass has grander plans for trying to integrate this across the entire industry and in that when you buy a bike, it would come with one of these equipped and they see it as the final step in tackling bike theft. Um, so that should be enough to does, does, have anybody go look at it. Does an NFC uh, integrate with an NFT? Mm. I don't know no. i was um <laughs> no no yes to be clear to be clear not an nfc that ronan is referring to here that refers to near field communication uh it's basically like a little uh it's sort of like a like a, almost like a one-way communication thing it's just, it's essentially like a little like a little sticker chip thing that you stick on things that um uh you can essentially sort of scan them with their phone uh not visually mm-hmm. it's just like a, it's just a wireless communication thing uh, and then you can get a whole bunch of information back that's usually embedded onto the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is not to be confused with an NFT, which is a non-fungible token, which is otherwise uh, – which is basically just a digital picture in a lot of cases. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't and know. I think the techs could uh, could overlap and be used together. But uh, who knows? 
Maybe they've uh, purposely avoided using N- those. NF- those NFTs those are a store subject, Dave. Let's, yeah. I don't want to talk about NFTs. All right, anymore. we'll move on. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll keep that subject outside. All right, let, let's let's move on from Eurobike. Uh, <laughs> Dave, what do you have on your mind this week? Uh, fires, really? Um, oh, fires, interesting. Yeah, with all this talk about e-bikes, uh, I'm quite aware in front of mind of uh, lithium-ion-related fires. And uh, it's it's on the top of my mind because it's been quite busy in the news as of late. There was uh, just this last week, there was a, an e-bike rental store in New York that had an issue and four people died as a result of it. Uh, and yeah, there's, it's not, a, it's not an, in, an isolated incident, unfortunately. Looking at it, battery-powered mobility devices uh, have been the cause of over 100 fires this year in New York City alone. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's 13 deaths so far this year in New York alone. There's more across the country than that. Uh, yeah, government bodies are now looking into it. There's talk of like federal based laws to standardize, um, required certifications on this. But yeah, it's just, for me, it, it's, it's obviously, it's all related to sort of non-certified, uh, bikes the the stuff that sort of comes direct from china like aliexpress style that sort of uh don't have to meet the same standards and don't necessarily have the same testing standards or, or quality control brought into them and it's it's a lot of the bikes that you'd see like food delivery services using because they're they're typically low cost uh but the problem here is that these fires are, are obviously causing quite a lot of fear towards e-bikes in general and we're starting to see like building management and you know talk of campuses and large-scale, um, yeah, residential services sort of banning e-bikes until there's there's better solutions in place. And I think, yeah, it's just, it's something to keep in mind because it's, it's you know, these, these cheap products could potentially have real implications on all the good things happening in the, in the bike world for, for trying to make people more mobile. Yeah, one thing to point out, um, this isn't necessarily an e-bike specific thing um, mm. because we have had issues with fires in general with um, with all sorts of consumer goods that yeah. ha- that just have inexpensive yeah. and sketchy rechargeable lithium ion well, batteries. Yeah. Well, not even um, inexpensive. Like Dell and Samsung both had pretty widespread, sure, sure. famous recalls for you know burning people. Yeah, and and <laughs> and you know there are all sorts of all sorts of warnings from airlines and stuff talking about like vape pens and like rechargeable battery packs and that sort of thing. Um, but the issue with e-bikes is that compared to a lot of consumer items, those batteries are quite a bit bigger, yeah. uh, larger capacity, and they're often subject to a lot harsher environmental conditions. So I think um, they're generally treated less favorably and they are probably more prone to more prone to damage. Um, and even if they're not damaged, if it's just a cheap battery, then... Um, then you know they're they're prone to overcharging or short circuiting or anything like that. And then the issue with a lithium iron battery in particular is that once those fires get going, they're really really wicked hot and they're really hard to put out. That's the mm-hmm. problem. Um, and then and they happen crazy quickly, like a super a, a super fast from some uh, yeah, yeah some people uh, representatives of the fire departments suggesting like five to ten seconds it can engulf a room once you see it ignite. Yeah. And then with a lot of these uh, e-bike fires that that we ha- that have been around in the news, um, one common theme seems to be uh, a lot of them seem to be happening. I shouldn't say a lot of them, but but at least a few of them have happened in 
um, sort of like e-bike repair shops that yeah. have had a lot of higher capacity e-bike batteries within mm-hmm. close proximity with each other. Yeah. And then once one goes, then the whole pile of Dominant them goes effect. and then it's all yeah. over. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess that's, that's one reason, at least for my own stuff, I tend to sort of really, really prefer to stick to like the absolute big major brands like mm-hmm. uh, Bosch in particular, just because they have so many regulations and certifications and stuff like that in, in place. Um, that's just not something that I want to mess with. Right are these fires happening only when the bikes are, or the batteries are even are charging, or are they just like? I don't think uh, so. Spontaneous. Um, not necessarily. I think in in a lot of cases, yes, because that's when they get overheated. Um, like mm. these these cheap ones can short out and get overheated, and then they get that the the runaway of the heat. Um, but yeah, I think it it can happen just through like damaged cells, and it can happen without having to charge Randomly. the battery. Um, but yeah, generally, like the the recommendations definitely like don't leave a battery unattended charging overnight because uh, it does seem that that is one of the more common uh, occurrences of the issues. Yeah, per- again, particularly with the inexpensive, especially yeah. add on kits that yeah. maybe don't have like an overcharge protection that sort of thing. But yeah, yeah I, I totally hear you, Dave. And I know this is a conversation that we were having internally. That um, yeah, Dave, you were saying that it could have a lot of detrimental effects in terms of how e-bikes could potentially have a very substantial benefit in terms of things like, you know, carbon emissions and getting people out of their you know, larger vehicles and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, one thing that uh, was raised in an internal conversation that we were having the other day is how this sort of thing could, uh, how municipalities and that sort of thing could potentially write regulations and laws that uh, sort of just, apply to e-bikes in general without mm. having the granularity of talking about ones that are safe versus ones that are maybe not terribly safe. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that's of, that, that's something that, that's potentially concerning for sure. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, thankfully it, it doesn't seem like that's where things are going to go. Like New York city's proposed a law, which I think is actually coming in in September, which is going to uh, make it illegal to sell unregulated e-bikes. Uh, but those regulations are a little bit, I haven't looked into it enough, but it seems a little bit uncertain as to what that means. But, uh, but yeah, certainly like in in Europe, there's there's regulations for these things, and that's why right. the right. brands that you find in Europe, are, you know, the Bosch and the Shimano's and the uh, you know the Panasonic branded batteries and and all the big name products that we normally cover. I mean, all those are safe because they have to pass some pretty rigorous testing. Uh, but yeah, it's still it's still a, a scary idea that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but, but there are also happen. going to be things like you know condo associations and homeowner yes. associations and yeah. that sort of thing that have when you, when you look at things on that small of a scale, mm-hmm. um, you know, just in the way that homeowners associations can say like, hey, you can't have weeds in your lawn. Um, are they going to say something like, you know, is a condo association or something going to be like, we do not allow residents to have e-bikes? Period. Yeah. Um, like, are they going to have some sort of regulation like that? Are those sorts of regulations risk. even yeah. legal? Yeah. Um, is it is it going to be something that's just related to insurance liability? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so those are all questions that need to be figured out sometime, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, mm-hmm. And hopefully these things are figured out well. Although yeah. that certainly remains to be seen. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, uh, and it, it's even more top of mind because I heard a, a story of a, a warehouse in Australia. I won't I won't say the brand because. Uh, I haven't confirmed this to be fact yet, but it's uh, a warehouse in Australia burnt down last week due to an e-bike battery fault is what I'd 
heard. And then there's other fires uh, over the last 12 months that I've heard of that haven't been confirmed as being related to battery fires. But it makes sense that a room full of e-bikes that burnt down and took eight hours to extinguish uh, would be related to a lithium-ion fault. Uh, so yeah, it's it. Uh, yeah, it goes back to like what you're saying, James, with the you know insurance regulations. It, it could be the insurance companies that that really stamp down on this and could right. cause ex- right. significant barriers to to the growth of the e-bike market. So yeah, either way, um, I I'll end this segment and this thought with a, a quote from a friend, Peter Arch, who uh, is a Melbourne-based mechanic, and he says, "Like sometimes my legs blow up, but that's not harming anyone else." And that's in reference to <laughs> him just preferring to ride analog bikes. Okay. Okay. Wow. Hmm. <laughs> that, was, that was quite a, quite the quote, Dave. Uh, you know, I, I have to say that uh, that I, I do have something on my mind as well. Uh, and I actually even have a PSA. But I feel like we should just end this show on that quote, if for no other reason than the fact that it's awesome <laughs> and the fact that we're kind of running along anyway. So we're just going to go ahead and wrap it up right there and save the other stuff oh, for another day. Fair enough. <laughs> all right well thanks as always for listening to geek warning as i said earlier we always do appreciate all of our listeners um we especially appreciate all of our members so if you are a member a big thank you from us uh if you're not a member again as i mentioned please do consider becoming one we do have monthly and annual options that are quite inexpensive i think all things considered uh and even if you are a member uh, again, thanks so much for for supporting us. Uh, but please consider telling your friends about Escape Collective because that is how this thing uh, becomes, I guess, sustainable because we're not quite there yet. We're getting there. Um, but yeah, if you could help us spread the word, that would be very, very much appreciated. And then finally, if you enjoy this podcast, if you haven't yet left a review and rating on iTunes, uh, please do so because that certainly helps us as well. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we don't we don't run any ads on Geek Warning, uh, so it's super helpful for us to just have a whole bunch of listeners here. Um, and with that all said, uh, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up. So yeah, again, thanks again from all of us, and uh, we will see you next time. Cheers. <laughs>